Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hi all. Welcome to Series 2 of Bereavement Room Podcast. I can't believe we're in Series 2. A massive thanks to everyone for their love and support over the past almost one year. I want to quickly remind you all why we're here. Bereavement Room is a safe space for the people of the diaspora to tell their stories of grief and loss, so often ignored or silenced by society because they are not told from a white perspective that fits into a neat and tidy box. Our experience is very rarely covered by mainstream channels and platforms. We discuss how grief affects us culturally, the discrimination that happens, inequality and the lack of understanding about how grief might manifest itself within the diaspora and the challenges along the way. We are more than the label that is BAME. I'm lost in the labels that we have. POC, BM, BME, minority, ethnic minorities and other communities. This is a peer-to-peer support platform and I want you to know that we are clearly not all the same but it's a safe space to feel represented, to feel witnessed, to feel seen and that I love you all and you are all welcome here. Which brings me to say that our first guest of series two is the co-founder of the Talking Wellbeing app, James Boston. James has joined me today to talk about identity, to talk about religion, and also to talk about the impact loss has had on his life and how he trains his mindset. So please do join me in welcoming James Boston, our first guest of series two. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Kolsima Ali. Hi everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. It's series two. I hope you all had a great summer. And I'm really pleased to say that today's guest is the co-founder of Talking Wellbeing app, James Boston. Hi, James. Hi, Kasuma. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. It's a bit hot, but, you know, got all the fans on and stuff. <laughs> praying, praying for the rain. Mm-hmm. So how are you feeling? How's, how's things been? How's your summer going? Yeah, quite relaxed. Uh, obviously, with the coronavirus, it's it's been challenging. It's been different. Um, it's a different kind of summer, um, mm. but you know, you've got to adapt. Uh, you've got to make sure that you keep looking after yourself and, and try and make as much progress as you can uh, at this unpre- unprecedented time. Mm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's about adjusting and, you know, I think we've all had to be flexible this year. And as you say, it's a summer like no other. Um, But it's definitely been a time of reflection, I think, for many to kind of take time out and just think about what's important, um, certainly from my perspective. So 
You've joined us today, and I'm really pleased to have your presence on the podcast today. Thank you so much. We're going to be talking about identity, and we're going to be talking about your experiences of bereavement. And before we go there, I mean, introduce yourself, like where you're from, what city you're from, what's your background? Mm-hmm, sure. So um, my name is James Boston. I'm 26 years old. I'm British Caribbean, um, family descending from Jamaica and Uh, to some extent Cuba, but mostly Jamaica. And uh, I'm the co-founder of Talking Wellbeing, um, which is a platform which essentially provides ancient inspired uh, wellness content, wellness services, wellness products, both online and offline. Um, So we're all about wellbeing and looking after yourself. And I was very much inspired to start that for a number of different reasons, really. Um, I'm all about freeing your minds. And uh, I'll talk about this today, but Descending from a Caribbean background and obviously studying the history of the Caribbean, um, you uh, become aware of the fact that there were strategic attempts, as there were in most places that were colonized, to affect the identity and mindset of individuals, essentially to mind control them. So for me, a big element of well-being and mental health was actually about a form of opposition to decolonizing my minds and putting my mind in a Uh, in a state where I'm proud of my identity, proud of my culture, proud of my mental health. Um, And then if you couple that with the fact that university, I have a, I studied um, philosophy and religious studies Mm -hmm. um, to master's level. Um, And I have an interest in ancient religions, ancient spiritualities. And my ethos is that um, while the politics of religions may differ, the spiritual undertone that they are essentially saying is really all the same, just in a different language and a different cultural portrayal. So if you combine these two things together of kind of decolonizing the minds and finding an authentic space of ancient spirituality, um, this is where talking well-being has really manifested and come into existence. And it's about allowing people to free their minds by using these ancient strategies to put their mindset and their mental health and their well-being in the best position that it can be. I'm also the founder of the Association of Former British Colonies uh, social media pages, um, which again ties into my passion for decolonization, not just of the mind, but also society. Uh, I believe that both in Britain and around the world in Britain's uh, former colonies, um, there are systems in place that uphold racist values and colonial values. And although it's a lot more discreet these days, in, in most cases, um, than it used to be, Um, they're still very much existent and still pose a threat to equality and um, uh, economic equality and economic opportunity for disadvantaged persons of colour in particular. Um, And don't get me started on the standard of beauty. And, you know, if you look at different aspects of society, whether it's economics, whether it's racial equality, whether it's beauty, skin colour, there is a need to decolonize. And that is what the Association of Former British Colonies page is really all about. It's about decolonizing. It's about educating people on the legacies of empire mm. because people, many people are not actually aware of it. Um, no, they're not. No. And I mean, you talk about decolonizing. Um, you know, this is our entire structure that needs decolonizing. So you talked about mm-hmm. those opportunities in the in the in the workplace, which I think is very important because that's rife. And um, when it comes to recruitment bias and things like that. So when you talk about decolonizing, how long ago did you start decolonizing your mind? Uh, it really started from the age of 16. Um, so I just finished my GCSEs. 
and um, wow, okay. had, had some spare time on my hands and the movie Roots was actually on YouTube mm. and um, it's not something I'd watched. I was aware that it existed and I was aware that it contained some pretty deep content, but mm. I didn't watch it. I think partially out of fear um, and, you know, partially of not really knowing what to expect from it. It was a real coming out of your comfort zone kind of thing, I guess. You know, mm. they say ignorance is bliss, I guess. Yeah, and, and, I, um, and I guess coming of age for you at 16 as well, a little bit. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And um, in watching Roots, I watched the entire thing from the beginning to the story carried on to the modern day, which was then the 1970s. Obviously, that's when it was made. And what hit me most was two things. Firstly, you know, that whole process of the transatlantic slave trade happened mm. to my ancestors. Mm. And that, that, that's pretty deep to take. Mm. Um, knowing that, you know, Caribbean people descend from Africa but many of us feel so disconnected from Africa um, mm. that's that's a deep thing and then also what hit me was um, in one of the last episodes uh, the African-American couple they go into a restaurant they've been invited to like a dinner party yeah and they're the only non-white couple at this event and the woman turns to her husband and she basically says you know we don't have any we're African-American but we don't have any African values we have, you know, been completely, you know, uh, brainwashed. You know, there's nothing about us that's African other than the way we look. And that really sent my mind thinking that, well, you know, colonization and slavery happened a long time ago, but the effects of it, especially psychologically, they're still very, uh, they're very present in the modern day and it affects people's mindset. So I took it upon myself to learn about the history of the Caribbean and then Africa and then India, even though I'm not Indian. And then you realize that when you go around the world and see different parts of the world that were colonized, you see patterns. Maybe the things were slightly different. Um, obviously, for example, the transatlantic slave trade in the Caribbean, that didn't take place in India, but there were similar structures in place. For example, indentureship, which was essentially a loophole where loads, like thousands of millions of Indians were shipped um, from India to the Caribbean to mm. work in a kind of slavery loophole. Yeah. Slavery had just been abolished. They had to find another way to get basically free or next to costing nothing servitude. Um, so when you study the history, you become aware of it so much. Mm. Uh, so it really started from the age of 16 and, and it's something that's still progressing to this day. Okay. And how do you find that journey has been for you in terms of your emotions and your health? Um, it sounds like it was quite intense and you talked about having a little bit of fear in there and not knowing what to expect. What has that looked like in terms of your emotions from age um, 16 to now? Well, the, the fear was only pre-roots, <laughs> pre-16. Um, the fear went out the window and was replaced by a fire and a determination to, like to change. Um, you know, I've, when I was at university, you know, I went to the University of Gloucestershire, mm. not the most diverse university, especially oh, yeah. in, the in the Cheltenham campus. Okay. But, you know, I stood up in front of a, a, a lecture hall full of white people. I was the only non-white person in there. Wow. And lectured and taught them about slavery. Wow. <laughs> wow. Whoa, that's big. So what, was, what were you studying at University of Gloucestershire? Uh, philosophy and religious studies and okay. we, we had a module on ethics and inequality and we mm. all had to pick a topic and I, I, I made sure the lecturer you know gave me racial inequality uh, and then I got to present to everybody. What um, was that like? That it was good uh, I wasn't sure how much you, do you know what I think because my uh, the people I went to university with were great people 
you know, I had never had any issues from any of them. Yeah, not even just in terms of race, just generally, they were all very nice people that I got on well with, good sense of humor. Um, so I wasn't expecting a backlash from them or, you know, some, you know, uh, <laughs> microaggressions. Microaggressions no. or being told to go back to my, I wasn't expecting any of that. And because they were very open minded people, okay. um, the reaction from them was really positive. Uh, there were a few tears shed. And my lecture, I think my lecture actually cried. And um, a few of the a few of the others in the in the in the class they cried um, when I talked about it. Um, but wow. what I was really encouraged by was the fact that there was a, a yearning to understand more on their behalf, and that really mm. encouraged me. You know, because mm. some people might have the perception that you know, uh, who's this who's this black person complaining and stuff like this, um, and that does happen. You know, there it are, are gen- genuinely <laughs> people out there who think that you know the empire wasn't that bad; it was a good thing, and we should stop complaining and just get on with it. You know, there are people who believe that. Yes, I've definitely come across it myself. When I've had to talk about experiences to do a faith, for example, um, or the uh, my own experiences of being disadvantaged as a minority within a minority, and sometimes people just don't they just like stop complaining get on with it it could be worse and they don't actually want to listen to understand so I think that you having that experience while you're at university is fantastic it sounds like your class held you in that moment Mm -hmm. which is very important when you're talking about something that is so close to your heart and is essentially you know your entire fabric of who you are and your identity um so that kind of brings me on to finding a bit more about your Talking Wellbeing app, which is free to download, I believe. Uh, what is sort of the backstory? Because you're the co-founder and then there's someone, another one of your co-founders is in the States. Is that right? Like, how did that come together? Were you in a room? Was it, did you brainstorm? Or was it part of the decolonizing process since you were 16? What's the story behind that? Yeah, so um, I met my business partner um, in... Jamaica uh, when I was visiting family uh, mm. his family is Haitian and if you go those of you who don't know Caribbean geography ha- Haiti and Jamaica are very close to each other and they've had a very close historical relationship um, and without going off track many of the slaves who the British essentially couldn't handle in Jamaica they shipped them to Haiti and gave them to the French to deal with instead wow. and um, you know so Haiti and Jamaica have this connection so when I met my business partner for the first time uh, it was actually a delayed flight which was the reason we met if that flight had been on time, we would never have met. And um, wow, okay. Ended up having three hours to kill, so mm. we just we just started hanging out and talking. Um, and then we realized had a lot in common, similar values, and obviously well-being and spirituality was one of those. So if we fast forward to obviously talking or being being created by us and the app, um, one of the reasons we've made this app, there, I mean, there are many reasons. Um, one of the issues I think with um, some social media outlets is that you get a range so some people might want to use social media for mindful purposes but unfortunately algorithms can make it challenging for us to have that you know to avoid nonsense basically being put in our face yeah (laughs) for her well-being videos of like you know random people fighting and stuff like that yeah that doesn't really do our mental health that much Mm. good not very Um, nourishing so we wanted an app that, which obviously we're still working on and, and still developing as each day goes by. But mm. we wanted an app that essentially means that when you uh, log into this app, you're essentially getting everything well-being. There is nothing on the app that you're going to see that is 
you know, have a detriment to your well-being or not going to benefit you. Um, you know, and on the app, we want to have um, articles, blogs for you to access, products, merchandise. We're speaking with vendors at the minute and different um, sort of business owners, um, for example, in the essential oils field, to, to have their, their products on our app. So that will essentially mean that you can even book, um, you can buy products, well-being products, read uh, well-being uh, uh, articles, even take well-being courses. We're going to set up a subscription fee, which means instead of having to pay one-off fees for courses online, we'll have a subscription fee where you will get access to these new courses through our app. Um, and additionally, we're also in talks with uh, some contractors and therapists and different experts to be able to provide coaching services. So what that will mean is that you'll be able to subscribe to our app and book a session uh, with uh, an expert in a different field, a coaching session, um, to help you work on whatever personal area of development that you have identified. So we want this app to be as tailor-made for you as possible. Mm. And just be, you know, just all about that well-being culture, really. Yeah. I mean, I downloaded it, and um, when I first created my profile, I, I ticked the topics that are, um, are specific to me, the stuff that I'm interested in, mm-hmm. um, like coaching, and I tailored it to myself. So when the content does come to me, I get the notifications that, the stuff that I picked to begin with, you know, there's new updates. Um, I do like that it's really tailor-made so that I only get things that I'm interested in and the other stuff that I'm not interested in, that's great. That doesn't come to me. Um, so it's brilliant. I love, I love the story of your business partner, you randomly meeting him at the airport on a delayed flight. I just love how serendipitous that is because you don't know him essentially from Adam and you just randomly connected with him and then here you are, you guys have created something amazing. I mean, that's just great. That's really great. Like how did you, you know, I mean, how did you build that relationship over time? Because if he lives in the States and you're here in the UK, were you flying back and forth? Were you Zooming? Um, no, yeah, just, just via WhatsApp, really, and obviously making use of technology. Yeah. Um, what really stood out was that um, despite the fact that he was across the Atlantic, you know, in the US, for some reason, we didn't speak for a month and then we, sp- and then we spoke. It's almost like we'd have the exact same experiences or, or you know, trains of thought. Mm. It's almost like we were having very a very similar form of consciousness uh, without in fully intending to. It wasn't like I was phoning him every day, speaking about the exact same topics. It was kind of mm-hmm. just like we'd speak every every now and then, uh, like I said, about a month. Very organic. And yeah, it was it was just weird. Was, you know, every time I'd bring up something, he's like, "Wow, I had that experience too." Yeah, it's so meant to be. It sounds like. <laughs> that was meant to be I do like it it's like your soul's met <laughs> mm, yeah, that's brilliant that it seems that way yeah yeah oh well that's brilliant and um congratulations on launching your app this year um and I, I want to talk to you about identity politics a, a little bit um sure. I mean so many of us use the term black and brown do you see issues with the way that we talk about our identity and why um okay yeah there's quite a, quite a difficult question there's there's many layers to it so mm. we've got to think in terms of convenience and then also there's the convenient element and then there's also the uh element that i have so for example for me i understand in the, when i talk to you about decolonization mm. i understand that 
not one Indian person, not one African person or Aboriginal person or whatever, pre-colonization, refer to themselves on mass scale as black or brown people. Yeah. If, you go, if you went back in time pre-colonization and you went to, you know, uh, what's now Ghana and you say the Ashanti tribe, mm-hmm. um, those people wouldn't have called themselves black people. They would have just referred to themselves by their ethnic group. Mm. Um, so Ma- Malcolm X said that uh, he had this quote where I can't remember it word for word, but he basically said, when you're told that you're black, you're not really told anything about that doesn't really tell you anything about your Absolutely. Identity. That's it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's a color. And unfortunately, because of the way society is, this whole notion of black and white in particular is it's like on a um, how can I put it? It's it has certain connotations uh, immediately um, where when you uh, when these labels become a part of you, there's certain things and sometimes positive things, but not always negative. But you essentially mean that somebody else has power to uh, showcase who you are. So I'll give an example, right? Um, I'm talking about this as, a, as an archetypal sense. Somebody else has the power to create the archetype of what it means to be black. Let's give an example. Um, as much as you know, there are a lot of rap culture, you know, is rooted in black culture. The people who you can say pull the strings and control the images of hip hop culture are not from the community. Um, they're often large businessmen with lots of money and power to influence things and sh- and make sure that what they want you to get seen on television is shown on television. Yeah. Um, so what that means is essentially that when a young so-called black boy, uh, whether that's in the UK, America, or other parts of the world, is trying to find themselves, is trying to work out their identity, they then told you are black, you're a black boy growing up to be a black man. And in many cases, they say, okay, well, what does it mean to be a black man? Switch on the TV or, or the internet these days. What do they see? They see that black culture is that that portrayal that somebody else who's again often not black is has decided from the top of some ivory tower pulling the strings on the media and hip-hop videos have decided that this is what should be shown in the mainstream as representative of black culture so that then plants an archetypal image in people's minds especially minds where their brains are still forming and they're Mm. still working things out they haven't really they're only just forming a conscious idea of themselves and the world around them. Yeah. They, that then is fed into their mind that this is black culture. And it also affects white people too, or again, so-called white people. Because even in Europe, you know, pre-colonization, people didn't really refer to themselves as white. That's another topic. Um, uh, you know, um, even in Europe, you know, people, a lot of white boys are very influenced by, again, that hip hop culture and they want to identify with black culture and they think that that is the way to do it based on these images that are shown to them. Mm-hmm. So the problem with these labels is that because they're so widely perpetuated and, and rooted in colonization and other people dictating identity for you, you put yourself at risk that somebody else essentially is controlling the archetype of what your identity is in terms of the images that are presented to you. Mm-hmm. So that then ca- Sorry, it, yeah, it is very dangerous, especially for our younger generation growing up in the age of social media. Uh, they're born in that. Um, so it's everywhere they go, um, when they're at school, uh, when they go to work. And it's quite worrying, which kind of brings me to 
the label you talk about labels what mm-hmm. do you what is the future for the terminology the BAME then do you think it will be replaced should we abandon the um, umbrella term BAME I think I think that um, at the minute it's again I talked I use that word convenience at the minute it's convenience because if you look at the level of collective consciousness of most people in the UK and in America they have this term BIPOC which is black indigenous people of color it reflects the mass consciousness of people at the time and we just want to take things one step at a time and not overcomplicate things. But for me personally, as an individual, um, I don't, I, I don't, I, I suppose, yes, I identify as black because, you know, technically, if you, you know, go by the label of what it means to be black, I am, but I don't label myself as that. I'm British Afro-Caribbean, meaning that I live in Britain and I'm of African Caribbean heritage. And that tells me everything I need to know about my identity, where mm. I live, where my immediate family come from and where my ancestry comes from which was africa mm-hmm. like text ticks all the boxes for me so my, my girlfriend is pakistani mm-hmm. and you know we had this conversation where actually when you know uh, around the time we first met and i says well you know i know that there's a mass movement on social media of uh, south asians referring to themselves as brown but that's more of a modern modern social media trend if you actually go and fill out your identity on a form, it doesn't say brown, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It says, you know, British, <laughs> British Indian, British Pakistani, yeah. British Bangladeshi. There's a clear distinction with a country or a region or a landmass. Whereas if you're just black British, yes, you live in Britain, but what ancestral land do you have to identify with? Mm. So, yeah, I guess brown is a, a modern terminology and people have created their businesses from br- calling it brown something. Do you mm-hmm. see any issues with that? Nah, I wouldn't say I see issues with these terms. I just think that they are, again, rooted in colonial values mm-hmm. and out- outdated ways of labelling and identifying people. Mm. And. So in, in America, for example, there's a, the National Association of Colored People, mm. you know, where I think that, you know, you know, that, again, was formed in the 1920s, I believe. And again, it was reflective of a time when non-white people were just called colored. Most yeah. people don't use that term anymore, colored. No. You know, I, know, I know there's the term people of color, but colored is not a mass scale used. So what will happen eventually is, although that organization is still relevant and does do work, They've had to transition. I don't think that they've changed their name, but they've had to transition the type of terminology that they use. And I think, you know, society will also get to a point where we then transition from black, brown and referring, referring to people by colors of their skin to actually reflect an understanding of identity. Because again, even there's a, it was really interesting on Good Morning Britain, there was a white guy who openly admitted that he used to be racist. And one of the things that prevented it, well, uh, stopped him being racist was the fact that he started to look at the experiences of people of color, um, especially Asians and black and again, so-called black people, why they come to this country, their background. So when you learn about people's uh, history in terms of India, the Caribbean, Africa, that puts things into more of a context because you identify a landmass, a culture that's in that landmass, a way yeah. of life that's in that landmass, the history mm. of that landmass. But again, if you just go back to, and this is another problem with it, especially when it comes to the term black. The term black is synonymous with oppression. And the problem for so-called black people is that the the only history that's really taught to us is one of oppression and servitude and being um, submissive and and being dominated by white people. 
Yeah. Firstly, the fact that there were many slave rebellions that they don't tell you about, but even going beyond that, even before Europeans even came to Africa and other parts of the world, so-called black people in Africa and people of color, again, quote unquote, did magnificent things all around the world. Absolutely. When you when you buy into these labels and identity, again, you miss, you often miss out on that part because you're fed the story of oppression. That to be black is to be oppressed. Mm. Not the fact that to be black was to be a king in Africa at some point in history, for example. Absolutely. So do you think now as time evolves that we're going to be more specific about our identity and move away from these umbrella terms? Uh, I don't think it will happen anytime soon. Okay. I anticipate and hope that it does happen uh, at least by the time I have children and that they are like my age. So maybe in a generation's time. Um, I just think that BAME is, is only just, um, you know, really coming into the mainstream in the UK. And to change it again right now, it probably wouldn't be convenient because, you know, we're at a stage where we're trying to get people of all ethnic groups to understand the struggle of, of, of black people, of, again, so-called black people. Um, mm. So I think it's convenient at the time. But as we deepen our understanding of uh, each other, each other's ethnicity, each other's identity, and I would hope that we can have a more in-depth and specific understanding of ethnicity and identity. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. It was really insightful. And I am trying to be more specific about my identity. So when I introduce myself, I always say I'm a British Bangladeshi Muslim woman. Um, and I think it's I think it's important to be specific about your identity. I'm starting to really dislike these umbrella terms because I'm not the same as another ethnic group and we are impacted by issues in different ways we're not all oppressed oppressed in the same way at all Um, sorry I think what's quite interesting what you just said there um you know if we look at like India and and I'm including Pakistan and Bangladesh in that obviously pre-colonial India as much as we we now refer to India as a collective nation even that is a, is a colonial construct because in the region that we now call India, Bangladesh and Pakistan, there are so many different ethnic groups, so many different subcultures that, again, you know, if you just label people, people as under one banner, you, you can potentially overlook some of those cultures. You know, the, the truth is that if you go to the southern part of India, like the Tamil region, yes. and then go to Bangladesh, you'll, you know, you'll find similarities, but there's quite a difference. People speak a completely different language. Uh, dress styles are different the, f- the way of cooking is different um, that maybe some of the cultural expressions like dance are different the music is different and if you just label people and categorize people you you kind of miss out on that you know absolutely that's why i'm moving away from the umbrella term south asian because i i've i it's starting to frustrate me recently the term south asian because it's not telling me the full story interesting uh, yeah, so I am moving away from that. I'm just saying it out there, putting it out there, letting you all know I'm, I'm not South Asian, I'm Bangladeshi. Anyway, we, yeah. Um, so we, we move on to um, comparison. Like, I want to talk about dual identity. So, like, people like you and I that are born here in the UK, but obviously hold a dual identity, um, but also our British identity. So in comparison to our white counterparts, do you think that we have more challenges in life when it comes to mental health, bereavement, um, accessing education, kind of what's your perspective on that? 
yeah definitely definitely there, there are there are challenges and, and these are backed up by statistics you know as we can have our opinions but the stats tell the true story um mm. my mom actually works she's got a new job as an equality inclusion and diversity lead at a hospital in the southwest and her job is to make sure that the hospital um you know is inclusive is equality uh, is practicing equality in their practices of recruitment etc 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 um, and the reason they hired her to do that because the stats showed them that their hospital was racially biased uh, and that's just one example there you know many examples of you know schools and systems and, and, and stuff all around the world um, uh, not just in the UK the fact that again so-called black people are less likely to get loans in their first year of business um, there are many different challenges um, that you face uh, when you are uh, essentially non-white. Um, I did an interview with a professor, and um, e even in a psychological sense, um, and I think that's where it really begins, before it becomes systemic, because um, you, you internalize this stuff. Um, and he said his experience, he grew up in Yorkshire, and uh, again, you know, obviously being an ethnic minority there, he said that when you are a non-white person living in the UK, you become the other. Whiteness is the norm and the center of what the standard is. And you essentially can be made to feel like you have to try and fit into that norm, but you can't really because you're the other. So you're the outsider trying to get into the center or the norm, you know, whereas a white person is, is just considered the norm. And that there is a real aspect of that, you know, even in terms of cultural practices, you know, just the way you, your culture is experienced, it's kind of the alternative. Oh, that's interesting. That's, you know, like, it's just, it's, uh, I'm not, I haven't got the terminology in my mind right now, but it's, it is, you are this alternative, you are this other. And mm. if you, if now, if you talk about workplaces and stuff like that, you need to become as close to that norm as possible if you want to succeed. Mm. You know? So I guess Pretty Patel is an example of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is she? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd say she's a perfect example of that. Um, where? Uh, yeah. Go on. So go, go on. Go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I'm not her big. Well, I'm not a fan at all. <laughs> um, but I guess some would argue that she's playing that game of getting closer to her white counterparts. It is possible. I mean. To I achieve speak, her goals? I can't... You, you see, it's really interesting what you say. Um, see, I have a belief that history repeats itself in different ways. Now, mm. I can't speak on Priti Patel in particular. But what I can say is, if you go back to the history of India, uh, different parts of the world, what colonial powers used to do was basically get people from the, from the ethnic groups they were colonising to do their dirty work for them. Again, I'm not saying Priti Patel is doing this I actually don't really know enough about the woman to make any comment about her. Mm. I don't really follow it. I don't really follow that stuff too, too much. But I know in India, they were, there were Anglo Indians that were essentially used oh, yeah. to do the colonial dirty work for them. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, I mean, there, there do exist people who are, they call it the token brown person. Yes. Um, in organizations where it's sort of a bit of a box ticking exercise, um, you know, uh, and there are there are certain complications that obviously come with it. That person is not necessarily there to uh, how can I put it? They're not necessarily not necessarily there based on their ability to do the job. They are sometimes just there to, because their face fits 
and because their face fits, they almost conduct themselves in the same way a non-person uh, uh, person of colour would do, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. I can really resonate with that. It's rife in the nine-to-five bog-standard office workplace. You, you see mm. it all the time. Um, yeah, interesting. So thank you for sharing your uh, perspective on identity. I uh, really appreciate it. It's good to, I think it's important to talk about that because identity is very much a big part of bereavement. Um, you know, in series one, all of my guests, all of them talked about their identity in terms of how bereavement and grief has impacted their life. And I know that um, you said your grandmother died in, in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, I'd love to hear more about the influence she's had on your life and your uh, identity. So, yeah, um, what was your grandmother like? Jeez, she's <laughs> I hope I don't get emotional, but, you know. That's it? okay. Emotion um, is good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so, you know, my grandmother was, you know, she's, she was the best, really, um, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, T- take your time. I mean, what, did she live close to her? Did she live with you at some point? Or? Well, actually, you know, I, I, was, I traveled around a lot mm. um, because my dad actually joined, I uh, was a part of the army. Um, okay. So we moved around a lot, but um, the only place that really stayed the same was my grandmother's house. Uh, she lived in Dudley. Okay. And um, obviously she was she was she wasn't from Dudley. She's you know uh, she was Jamaican, um, but obviously that's where that's that, that was sort of, that was almost like the real home for me because obviously moving around so much that was the only place that stayed the same. And uh, mum, I used to cry. Mum tells me stories how I used to cry when I had to leave, and I was extremely attached to my grandmother and. I have very fun memories, which unfortunately my, my cousins who are like nine, ten, I, f- I feel sorry for them because they'll never get that experience to like bond with my grandmother. You know, part of the reason that, you know, I'm very grounded in Caribbean culture is because of her. She just spoke to me in Patois, which for those of you who don't know what Patois is, it's, uh, it's the language. People call it a Creole, but it's a language. Um, uh, the language that's spoken in Jamaica. And... Um, yeah, she would just speak to me in it. I was just forced to understand things. And just being around her, um, you know, it was just such a nice influence. Um, she was the icon of Caribbean culture in our family. She was the, the rock. She represented it. She, not, not, not in like waving the flag or being super patriotic or anything like that, just, just the way she was. Those values of just, you know, Again, trend, the trend, the, taking certain cultural practices from the Caribbean and bringing them to the UK, you know, just always having a full house with an open door, feeding, you know, f- just, she was just a ridiculously kind person. She was so giving. She was so nice. She was just so maternal. She was, um, she was everything. And it really hit me that when I watched this movie called Soul Food um, a few years ago, and in the movie Soul Food, it's basically a story of an African-American family and they're all extremely you know, happy. They have dinner every Sunday, which is exactly what my family used to do every Sunday at my grandmother's house. Grandmother would cook and you know, just be a good vibe. There'd be a lot of people there, full house, culture absolutely rife. And in the movie, when the grandmother passes away, everybody makes the promise that you know, the tradition will carry on, but it doesn't. And although there are attempts to recreate that tradition, it's never the same. And that's exactly what happened to my family when my grandmother passed away. That tradition of Sunday at my grandmother's house, it just 
it just died and it doesn't exist anymore mm. um and well it was made worse obviously you see when my grandmother passed away as well you know that 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 house that i told you about that felt like home yeah <laughs> uh it wasn't the same anymore um and as much as you know i we stayed three more years we were there for uh, i would visit regularly because my aunt uh, still lived there I'd visit regularly it wasn't the same at all um it's like something was just missing from the house yeah, it just wasn't the same yeah uh, and obviously since sold that house and moved on and it's it's just yeah it's just, it just feels like something's missing you know yeah and um yeah it's, it's just mad it's just a mad one you know yeah i think all of the listeners and i resonate with that experience of something coming to an end and those dynamics changing and something something you know you have other additional losses with the loss of someone significant in your life whether it be that home and that food and coming together and um talking about stories about identity and it, it's it's a another loss to also deal with you know there's so many layers to when you lose someone that you love mm. and you, you speak about her beautifully and i i just kind of wonder you know how did you process your own bereavement how do you feel this uh, ties in with your well-being you know where where were you at the time when your grandmother passed away were you studying or i was at the gym to the gym and I was like you know I was on the treadmill uh, had a really good workout session I was genuinely feeling quite good about myself actually I had a really good workout and I drove home and my dad came running up the drive and they said you know your mother needs you your grandmother's passed away and um, she was in hospital but you know uh, I don't want to get too um, you know well basically she was in hospital she had had a stroke um, but she went into hospital with a very mild stroke. Mm. Unfortunately, a cock-up at the hospital. I'm not going to mention the name of the hospital. Yeah, let's not do that. Yeah. But a cock-up at the hospital meant that she got C. diff and her condition worsened much more than it needed to for somebody who'd suffered a very mild stroke. Uh, what's C. diff? I don't want to say, ma'am. I don't want to say. And I also don't know how to explain it, but it's... Is, is it an... Like a, another super bug or something? Yeah, it's a type of uh, bug that you get. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um. That's really sad, and I resonate with that because I had the same experiences with my mum and my dad when they passed away, and it's really sad when something goes wrong with the health services, mm-hmm. and and that really does add an extra layer to your grief. So, how do you process? How do you make peace with that? do you make peace even is the question can you make (laughs) peace with it you know i I believe we have two sides to us and and the sufi tradition talks about this we have a human side and we have a a spiritual side which is closer to the divine whatever you want to call that divine and our human self is flawed so i will allow my human self to be to be angry at times with that hospital to be annoyed and feel aggrieved at the way that that happens but ultimately, I have to balance that with my spiritual side and make peace with what has actually happened. Um, and also, I, you know, I'm of the belief, and this is a very um, uh, ancestral belief, if you, f- you find a lot in a lot of African traditions, that when your ancestors pass away, they don't just disappear. They actually go inside of you, which is why you can access so many vivid memories of them. So for me, my grandmother's spirit lives on and uh, all, all the time through dreams, 
through memories, um, through um, sometimes you just feel hurt. Sometimes I'm just gonna say, I know some people don't believe in, in ghosts, as, as people call it. I, I've had an experience seeing spirits and stuff like that from a very young age. Mm. And sometimes I can feel my grandmother's energy around me. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, she's kind of like a guardian angel um, and stuff like that. Um, so that that's the way I make peace of it. That her presence, although her physical presence is, is not here anymore and it is greatly missed and my human side misses it a lot. When I get into a deeper spiritual space, I believe that you can connect with your ancestors who have, you know, whose physicality has departed this world. You can connect with them. And, um, you know, I have a nice feeling that my grandmother's soul is at peace as well. And I don't, I don't just say that just so it's a nice thing to say. I genuinely believe that her soul is at peace. And, that uh, you know, um, there, there's an ancient Egyptian belief that um, it is a good thing for when you leave this earth for your heart to be as light as a feather and for your heart not to be weighed down by things. And I believe that my grandmother's soul and her heart wasn't weighed down by things as much as there was controversy of what happened in that hospital. You know, they say sometimes when it's your time, it's your time. You know, some people believe that. And um, yeah, I think, I think my grandmother maybe, you know, whether it was destiny or whether she was kind of okay with the way it happened, I guess, or she, that was just her time. Um, I think that she, when she, you know, when her physical body, uh, when, she, when her spirit or soul left her physical body, I felt like she was at peace and that her heart was, was light. And, um, you know, she's gone to the next realm. Um, whatever you may believe that to be heaven or whatever. Um, mm. And that, that's why. So, yes, the human side of me misses her terribly. Um, it's the first time my girlfriend ever saw me cry when I was talking about my grandmother. Mm. And uh, it happens a lot. You know, I'm surprised I'm not crying now, you know. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, about it, you gotta you got to balance it out, you know. And the spirituality helps me to balance it out. And those core beliefs of, you know, it's not just being it and being able to connect with those people in different ways um yeah there's a book i read as well called the uh oh, i can't remember what it's called the oh, it's called the dreamer's book of the dead and it's uh, it's a, it's based on an ancient egyptian book that basically again believes that you know when people do pass away not that's not it you know there, there's more to it and you can actually connect with connect with people through memories and stuff like that you know so um mm. and i can still hear my grandmother's voice <laughs> like this weird thing that's never gone away some people sometimes you forget people's voice but i could literally recall my grandmother's voice and her the way she used to speak i could literally recall it right now you know how <laughs> she's always asking me if i want crisps and stuff like that or i want something to eat you know every question she asked was always do you want something always putting other people before herself you know your grandmother sounds lovely really <laughs> yeah, lovely she was. She yeah was, yeah and you've ha obviously had a really deep connection and the way that you move forward with your grief it's it's very inspirational to me just because you talk about what what went wrong in the hospital and I think that's something that I struggle with that I'm still trying to get closer to maybe where you are spiritually um with how things unravel when someone dies um so yeah that's really inspirational to hear and I hope that our listeners get some value from that as well, because as we know it, grief is universal, but the narrative around bereavement is not. And sometimes it can be difficult to process what's mm. going on when something, something that 
has you know gone wrong whether it's with the hospital or something else um but yeah i mean that's really lovely james thank you for sharing that and i i'm just curious to know do you identify with a particular faith at all um no and yes (laughs) that's the answer of a philosopher okay no i don't consider myself to be a christian or a muslim or a buddhist or whatever but I find truth in every single religion, uh, even ones that people would never have heard of before. Um, I, I, I'm of the opinion, I think I mentioned it earlier on, that um, see, the, the, in my opinion, there are two sides to spirituality. There's an exoteric side and an esoteric side. An exoteric side is more about following laws and following rules and regulations and stuff like that. And that's not always a bad thing. Um, but for me, that's that's not true spirituality for me personally for is for the next person and that's cool but for me the esoteric path is more about the internal path which is more about personal experiences and uh, your journey with the divine and spirituality through personal experiences it's very sufi like so w- my opinion is if you get caught up in the exoteric side of the religion which is the rules the laws you should and should not do this then you will find many ways to divide yourself Uh, from other people you Mm. will see yourself as separate from say if you're a muslim you will see yourself as separate from a christian Mm. or a a so-called hindu or or buddhist etc but in studying the esoteric path and focusing more on the internal you know the spiritual practices Mm. it is it is my sincere opinion that all religions in terms of their esoteric path are exactly the same just culturally different so I'll give an example. In Islam, uh, they do dhikr, right? Which is like yeah. chanting the name of God. Yeah. Yeah. They do that, in, su- in, uh, they do that in, in Hinduism. They call yeah. them mantras. Buddhists yeah. do that. They call them mantras. Christians do it. They call them prayers and hymns. Sikhs do it. I believe it's the Gurbani. So every religion has that exact same spiritual practice as a means of getting closer to the divine or to God. They just do it in a different language, in a different culture. That's just one example. There are many others that there are so many of these core spiritual practices again not the laws and the you should eat this and you shouldn't do that that's different that's exoteric the esoteric is these internal practices which are designed to transcend to to take your personal experiences and transcend them so that they are refined and made closer to god or whatever spiritual purpose you have and if you understand and study that side of religion you find more similarities which can unite you with people rather than divide you and that's really important absolutely i couldn't agree more i really relate to that um i've got to to say this as well so uh, so on saturday i went into into birmingham right yeah Um, and um uh well if you go into birmingham you'll often see there are there's uh, in the middle of the town park there are Christians and Muslims who are sort of preaching their, their, their beliefs. You don't really get Sikhs, Hindus or Buddhists doing it. It's only really Christians and Muslims. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a conversation, two conversations, one with a Muslim guy and one with a Christian guy. And to cut a long story short, they were essentially both trying to tell me that their faith was the best one and you know, I, should, I should join them. And they say, they asked me the question and one of the guys says, do you believe in the teachings of, um, uh, of the Prophet Muhammad? Peace be upon him for our Muslim listeners. And he was expecting me to say no, because I believe this instead. I says, well, yeah, yeah, I I agree with some of those teachings. I take wisdom from them, I take inspiration from them. But those aren't the only teachings I take inspiration from. I like what Buddha said. I like what Jesus said. 
I like what different spiritual leaders and gurus said. So that's not the only one. And I had the same conversation with a Christian guy. And he says, oh, do you accept that there is only one God? And I said, yeah. And he, he looked shocked because he was probably expecting me to say, yes, but I believe in this one. Or I said, yeah, I just, so I just believe that different cultures call that God by different names and have different depictions of it. So in Islam, you have like the 99 names of Allah. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, and many Muslims would probably strongly disagree with me, the, the, the different gods and goddesses in Hinduism are the exact same concept as the 99 names of Allah. You're just taking that one God and trying to understand that one God in different aspects. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. That's to mm. me what the Hindu de- like de- gods and goddesses are. It's just a jigsaw puzzle trying to explain that one God. And because mm. you have like, even look at yourself as a human, you are one being, but you may be a mother, you may be a sister, you may be a, a businessman or woman. You have so many different aspects to yourself. Mm. So you can't just define yourself as one label because there are many different components that make up that one being. So mm. for me, again, that this I, I could get all deep and do a whole uh, thing on this. That's, that's my yeah. Question. You could you could do your own podcast on this. <laughs> it's really interesting, and I I um I wonder. Do you think that maybe the message got distorted at some point by you know there there is essentially one message, but different communities have taken it on from their own perspective. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that's, again, that's, that's where it becomes from esoteric to exoteric. It then becomes less about... So give me an example, right? So they used to talk about this in Egypt. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Egypt used to have a, a very similar uh, spiritual tradition to India, um, what we now call Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the things that was noted was that people stopped doing these rituals and practices out of their own spiritual nature and they started to do it just out of automation or because somebody else was telling them to. And when that becomes your spirituality, that you are praying or meditating, not because you consciously and intentionally are trying to further your own personal spiritual journey, when you're doing those things out of just obligation and routine and automation, it loses the meaning and you just become, you will essentially become like a robot, really. Mm. Um, Mm. And that for me is a key difference, your intention behind these acts. You know, that is, it's the question of why, why am I doing this? And many people don't like to ask themselves that word because it's a bit of a scary word. Because if mm-hmm. you question why are you doing something, you're essentially questioning your entire values and your beliefs. And for some people who have been brought up into a religion, mm-hmm. ask, sincerely asking them that question and looking themselves in the mirror saying, why do I do this? Would I, would I follow this path if my parents didn't tell me to? That is a scary place to go. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of cultural nuances and and danger with uh, asking that why and even saying it to your parents uh, might not be met with much understanding. Um, Which kind of, you know, for everyone that's listening, you know, for me, that was really insightful. And I it's a bit of food for thought for anyone that's been thinking about faith and the meaning yeah. of life and why we're here and that was really deep i really enjoyed that and, and it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be a thing of like you know like for it doesn't have to be a thing of you know of an intention where you're trying to purposely you know, say i'm not going to be this religion anymore it's not about that when you ask yourself why this is again the esoteric path the inner path you're mm. just furthering your own spiritual journey absolutely you know? and 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 it really helps you there's um my girlfriend in- told me about this uh poet he's a punjabi poet and obviously you guys know that 
after the partition, the Punjab was split into two. Yeah. Pakistan half, India yeah. half. Yeah. And this poet basically say, you know, he, although he was born, I think he was, uh, I think he was Pakistan uh, Punjab now, Muslim. And he uh, did this poem where he basically say, if I was born on that side of the fence, I'd probably be a Sikh and stuff like that, you know, and, and that, that was really deep. Um, mm. And that's powerful because when you put your mind in that position of just being able to accept and understand certain things, it actually doesn't make you any less of a Muslim or less of a spiritual person. It enriches your spirituality because your mind is in a place where it can go beyond human limitations. Absolutely. Well, to all the listeners, I hope that this has brought some value and, you know, something to think about. And if anybody wants to tweet us or DM us to send us their thoughts on what we've been discussing, please do. It's at Bereavement Room on Twitter and Instagram. I want to talk to you about counselling and therapy. So after your grandmother died or just generally in life, have you had any sort of you know have you accessed any mental health services therapy have you seen a psychologist or a psychotherapist like what did that look like for you um no i haven't uh, that's just the short answer I've, I've never sought therapy um i would say that I, I i wouldn't say that i've ever experienced a mental health issue um every human being has faced challenges obviously my grandmother passing was, was one of those challenges there are many others you know in business and stuff like that we've all faced challenges you know mm. um, but I wouldn't say that I've had a mental health issue um what, what about say- just what about just seeing a therapist one-on-one is is that something you've ever been interested in or um no it's not something I've been interested in just because I haven't just because I haven't felt in a position where I you know I felt like I, I really need that support but you know for anybody, anybody listening who you know uh, is concerned about their mental health you know if you feel like you need therapy then you know by all means go to it just because I haven't you know I wouldn't identify as someone who's suffered from a mental health illness um, or ever felt that, that I'm in a position to to really need and seek that support um, that just because I that, that's my experience doesn't mean it has to be yours you know there are there are people in my life who I know who although you know I'm not the professional um, to recommend them to therapy there are people I know in my life who I've seen still to this day um, who suffer from what I would definitely say are, you know, I, I perceive to be uh, mental health issues. Again, I'm not, this isn't a, a, a diagnosis of that person, uh, disclaimer and all that stuff. Um, but there are people who I undoubtedly believe would benefit so much from therapy and seeking that support and having somebody to talk about their problems with. Um, I've lost people in my family to addiction. Um, and, you know, that, that is really difficult. I lost somebody in 2018 to uh, an addiction-related uh, issue. Uh, and if that person had just sought the support, and we tried to get them the support as well, and that's what really hurts. We tried. And unfortunately, that, that family member just deceived us, really. They kind of um, basically told us they were going, and they weren't really. Oh, um, that's so sad. You know, yeah. but it can undoubtedly help. It can really help you. You know, um, so mm-hmm. while I can't talk about my own personal experiences, I have seen people that family and somebody that I at one time considered a friend, um, definitely, uh, and, and other people as well, um, you know, could benefit from that support, uh, from that professional support, should I say. Uh, it's really important. Um, 
Yeah, especially if you haven't got someone in your environment to speak to because not everyone has a good support network or kind of has that ability to to go there and support themselves that they may need to access someone outside of their environment to mm-hmm. to open up to someone that's impartial but I'm just curious to know do you think maybe in the future you would ever access coaching or psychotherapists just generally no I, I don't see myself in the future going for sort of uh, that professional support um you know so I, i'll give you i'll be very candid so at the minute um you know my business so uh, you know we want we want things to to really improve and um you know our business has existed a year and um things are going reasonably well but there are certain things in the business that i'm not happy with um there are certain things that in order for our business to progress to a service that can really help people that can really you know really be life-changing for many people there are certain challenges that we have to overcome so for me, I understand that there are persons more qualified in business than me. So I have a very good friend. Uh, he's an older gentleman and um, he's had three successful businesses. So I recognize that with his experience of not just having one successful business, but three businesses that were very different from one another, I recognize that I could take a step back. Uh, I spoke to him yesterday and he said that he would agree to speak to me and my business partner and offer us some business coaching, some business support uh, based on his experience. So, you know, I know that that wasn't really like your question, um, but that's the sort of thing, like for me personally, um, you know, where I would seek support in terms of, you know, the business uh, element of things and uh, like the professional uh, aspect of how to run certain things. Because it's, it's like this, right? You know, I, I firmly believe that your mental health is your own responsibility, but if you're in a position where something isn't going quite right, you know, like my business where we want certain things to change, it makes sense to seek the support of somebody who's more qualified in the matter. So if you're really struggling to take responsibility for your own mental health, then it might be beneficial for you to seek the professional support of somebody who is, who is trained in the mind, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in Caribbean and South Asian culture, there's a stigma uh, a lot of the time around seeking support, seeking therapy, um, it can almost be seen like a failure or what's wrong with you or go and pray this time, you know, go and pray five times or Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know that one. <laughs> everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, and that's not always the best way to deal with it. Um, no. The professionals are, quali- are qualified and they're for a reason um, to help you. Um, and again, I want to emphasize this just because I in my position haven't, again, I wouldn't identify myself as a, uh, somebody who's had a mental health issue. Um, but I've told you guys that I want support for my business. I recognize that I need the support of somebody more qualified and experienced than myself. So I'm going to get business support from somebody, you, you know, so yeah, it makes sense. That's just in business. You've identified it. Yeah. Yeah. But if for you, the issue is a mental health issue or another type of issue then, and you feel that you would benefit from the support of somebody, then by all means, go and ask the relevant person. Mm. So I guess um, in terms of bereavement and grief when, you know, when someone you love has passed away, um, for me, although I could speak to my family members or a friend or a work colleague, um, I just find it more beneficial to speak to somebody outside of my environment because it's impartial, but also because people's listening skills are very poor mm-hmm. and a lot of people they don't listen to understand and it's usually to fix or rescue the situation but we can't fix anything here because the person has died it's really more about just listening and I think there's 
listening is so underrated I think we need to try and strengthen our listening skills I mean nobody is the perfect listener anyway we never will be but Mm -hmm. there are so many things we can do to improve it Mm -hmm. and I think that's a real problem when it comes to mental health and bereavement and grief it's the it's the listening because people say they're listening but they're not yeah I agree and I think um you know, there's a book that I've read, which I'd recommend to anybody. Mm. It's cheap, actually, on Amazon. It's called The Master Key. Uh, it's quite an old book, but it's very relevant. And the book basically holds one simple philosophy for your personal development. And that is exercise your concentration skills. And for many people, you know, on Instagram and social media, you know, who are interested in personal development, seeing a manifest a million pounds in six months video is much more appealing than a book telling you to work on your concentration skills. <laughs> yes. But the reality is you need to concentrate every single moment of the day um, in whatever field that you're in. And in terms of your well-being and even supporting other people, you need to develop those concentration skills. It is so important. In fact, it's that important, right, that if you study the yogic philosophy, the yogic wisdom, they have these concepts called siddhis and siddhis are essentially superpowers that human beings can develop. And guess what? One of them is listening skills, being able to concentrate and listen properly, hearing sounds around you, hearing the voice, this is what people are saying. Listening was actually considered a superpower and a skill that you should practice and devote significant time to developing. And it is such a useful skill. If you think about productivity and how much you'll get done, think about how much more you would get done and how much more productive you would be if you just trained your concentration skills. Think about how much more, you know, that meeting that you're a part of or something that you needed to remember, but you weren't quite listening. Think about how if you had developed your concentration skills, you wouldn't be struggling to remember certain things. Your mind would just be sharp, you know? So it is such... See, listening, listening right is something that can actually benefit you as well as the person because in exercising your listening skills, you make your mind sharper. You, you practice a skill, you know, um, you get used to a skill that um, you, you really take for granted. And you're going to laugh, right? But me and my girlfriend have been watching Desperate Housewives recently. She's like obsessed with it. Okay. And there's a character in there who lost his sight. Um, but miraculously, after like a few seasons, he was able to get his sight back. And now that he has his sight back, he's not taking anything for granted. He's like training his eyes. He's, um, you know, he's like a ladybug that he's seen a small insect he's like amazed by it and con- you know and flabbergasted by it and this is stuff that we take for granted especially our senses and we Absolutely. should train our senses to operate and serve us well and in serving us well it serves society well and that was the point a lot of these spiritual skills of you know developing listening and all that it's not just for yourself it's to make you a better contributor in society and the ability to listen to others you know we have two ears and one mouth is very very important absolutely i couldn't agree with you more listening is the biggest gift we can give to anybody but also Mm -hmm. to ourselves which now brings me on uh because we are going to be wrapping up very soon to talk about work-life balance very briefly how do we effectively manage it in the case of a bereavement Take, take time to just process it um look for me again i'm not a professional uh, I'm not a bereavement therapist. That's okay, but just personally, from your from, perspective. So recently, um, literally this month, my uncle passed away, mm. and um, you know, it was at he, it was at a time when you know, with my business and uh, the other page that I'm, I obviously work on, um, 
you know, it's time where I just had like so much stuff to do each day. And you know what, regardless of how important or pressing it was, you know, um, for the business, I just closed the laptop, um, you know, uh, tidied my room, got everything in order. I just sat myself in the mirror and just accepted what had happened and just came to terms with it. And I just had to, I had to just shut off my work, you know, and, um, I tell, I tell you what, yeah, I wanna, I'm gonna open up on a, an experience that I had. Again, I'm not gonna name the institution, <laughs> yeah. But um, I was at a workplace a few years ago, when yeah. I not only lost one relative but two relatives in a very short space of time, uh, two very close relatives. And if there's any employers listening or line managers or anything like that, please make sure that you do not take your employees. Uh, well-being for granted when it comes to bereavement make sure that they have the correct support don't treat it like a thing of oh sorry to hear that by the way have you met that deadline because that's exactly what happened to me and as much as I dealt with it um, it wasn't a nice environment to be in and I actually noticed that there was a colleague of mine who also lost a relative pretty much around the exact same time and again i'm not making any suggestions of racial uh you know maybe maybe it was racially motivated or an unconscious bias i don't know but that that person who you know was was a white uh, guy he was treated extremely differently when it came to bereavement than i was and and i tell you how extreme it was that um i was giving a sort of presentation to a very large audience and I was giving that presentation the day after my relative had passed away. And that very senior figure sat next to me uh, while I was about to give that presentation and not once asked me if I was okay. And I only found out months and months later that that same senior figure in the institution knew the entire time that I'd lost relatives and lost one like the day before. They knew the entire time and didn't even ask me if I was okay or condolences. The only thing they, that that person asked me was if I was ready for the speech. Oh, gosh. And the cor- corporate, corporate workplaces can become a very uh, narcissistic place where people are really out for themselves, you know, mm-hmm. because if you don't meet that deadline, then it affects on them and then their line managers on top of them. You know, don't have your work culture like that. And that's actually with talking or being this is actually one of the other services that we do. We want to go into schools, universities, workplaces and teach people and provide well-being workshops. And one of them, which we want to set up when COVID has buggered off is, a, <laughs> is yeah. a, essentially a bereavement um, training program. We're going to have therapists who go in there and deliver that on behalf of talking well-being because my experience of bereavement in a workplace, again, was it just me? Because maybe the other guy was treated a bit differently. But my personal experience was that losing two relatives in a very short space of time, that that institution showed no compassion at all. They were concerned about one thing. Were the deadlines met? Oh, James, I'm with you in this moment because I've had the, uh, it's probably not the exact same experience, but very similar when my mum died. The, my line manager said the same thing and it was all about work and the contracts and nobody asked me how I was and I had one day compassionate leave. Um, you didn't get any compassionate leave because you came into work to do that presentation, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so... 
I, you know, that stuff made me really angry 10 years ago. It really made me angry and changed my outlook on a lot of things. And you're right, there's a lot of narcissism within the corporate world. And I really appreciate you sending that message out there to line managers and people in leadership, employers to not take people's well-being for granted. Um, that's so important. And I love that you're going to be going into the workplace with therapists to talk about well-being in the workplace. It's so necessary. I think it's something that's more advanced in the US than it is here in the UK. We don't have enough of that. You know, those job roles don't exist within within those workplaces where there is an on-site counsellor or an on-site well-being or welfare person or that they do these workshops. So I'm really interested in hearing how that goes and how that works for you in the future. And I, I wish you um, great success with it. Yeah, I'm very passionate about doing that. I'm very passionate. And, and again, my, my own experience of, of in the corporate world and facing certain challenges has driven me to, to set up that. And if it wasn't for COVID, um, we, we would have already been doing the workshops in March. It's just that, you know, we, we were going to do a workshop and then COVID came along and then, it's been postponed ever since and we haven't been able to obviously go back in there and, and, and deliver that workshop. Um, but bereavement is an area um, that we definitely intend to uh, probably set up a, a sort of a program. Uh, well, we, will set, we have set up a program, we just need to execute it where um, you know, people are taught how to deal with bereavement in a professional setting. Because essentially, right, employers, you know, their first concern is productivity of their employees. You know, that's yeah. not going to change. Yeah. But they need to also understand that the, the improve, improved well-being conditions will actually deliver more productivity because if people feel better in themselves and their mental health, then they're going to work better. If they don't feel better and they're buckling under stress and pressure all the time and they feel like they f- they're made to feel like their well-being is, is a second, secondary thing, then they're probably not going to work. You know, may, maybe they'll be able to work well for a certain period of time, but they're going to get to a point where their morale will suffer. Um, and if you, if you make it feel like you're in this together, you're there to support them and encourage them to grow, even you know, for better or worse, shall we say, um, then it, it makes things different. It makes the individual, the employee's attitude towards their employer different, and it makes for a better workplace. I can't emphasize that enough. I have been on the wrong end of it, experiencing it. It is not nice at all. Nice. And it really makes you feel like the institution or the place that you're working for it really makes you feel like they're not really with you, that you're just an entity, just you're just a name and a number to them, you know? Absolutely, a name and a number and entity. And I've been at the end of that all the time and I have so many issues with it. So I'm glad that you're going to be, you know, d- doing that work. It's something we've talked about on the podcast. It's come up so many times about workplace grief mm. uh, where people have just not been met with the compassion that they need. And if you're not in the right frame of mind, you know, you're grieving, you're not always going to, you know, calling a helpline or getting the support that you need or asking for what you need. You're not always going to find the language to articulate that. I, I found it difficult when I tried to ask for flexi time after my brother died. Um, they just, my line manager was like, I need a business case for that. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, my brother died. And I'm really finding it hard. We work in a really small office. Everyone knows my business. It's really awkward. Like if I could just have one day from home, you know, I'm literally putting a smile on my face. But she was just like, nah, it's a business case. It's a business case. And it just, oh, I just, yeah, as you say, when the, it makes you feel like the employer isn't with you. And I think that 
if they do do that work, they retain their staff, right? It makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's, it's not like a, it's not like you know showing compassion and having a, a system in place would be of a detriment to them. No, it would actually benefit their 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 workplace culture. Mm. Um, which you know workplace culture is extremely important especially when it comes to well-being and my experience is that uh, well we could we, maybe we don't have enough time we could do another podcast on this but my experience of not just being in one workplace but you know in, in multiple was that uh, well-being is not on the top of the agenda that's for sure yeah absolutely it's not it's totally not and if it is it's a tick box once a year yeah, go yeah, to this yeah. lecture right it's yeah. part of your induction okay so how do you train your mindset and what works for you oh good question okay all right very simple most people um they try and change their mindset mindset through their conscious mind and that's not the way to do it the way, the way to do it is you have to influence the subconscious mind subconscious mind is basically where you store all of your values and thinking patterns. Um, much of the way you are and the habits you have in life are a result of your subconscious, the way your subconscious mind is programmed. Um, for example, so in order to change your mindset, you have to change your subconscious mind. And there's three ways to do that. Don't worry about the last one. The last one is trauma, trauma as psychologists and neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists prove trauma actually rewires the brain, but don't worry about that one. The ones that you should uh, can do is uh, number one repetition. So any habit that you anything that you do repeatedly becomes a habit, changes your subconscious mind. And the second thing is symbology. So having certain symbols in place to influence your subconscious mind. This is the simple simplest thing ever. And you know, obviously, talking well being, we have courses. Uh, we have a new course which we'll be releasing very soon, which is called a sort of introduction to Buddhism, a wellness course. Where we talk about some of the Buddhist teachings. And how, again, that can relate to personal development. But the most simple thing that I do is this. It's easy. I call it lazy spirituality. What you want to do is get a pen and paper. And you're going to write out a, an affirmation to yourself. Now, you know, really simple. You know, uh, even if it's like, you know, I am going to be successful. Or I am going to you know, get the, perf- the body that I want. Or I am going to do this, etc. Uh, and make it quite long. And... Uh, you know, so that what you're going to do is then record it on your phone. You're going to record yourself reading it. And I know people who don't like the sound of their own voice, you're going to have to start liking the sound of your own voice because <laughs> yeah. this is this is your personal thing. If somebody else recorded it to you or you just copied someone else's off the internet, it wouldn't have the same impact as when it's your own voice. So write out an affirmation to yourself of something that you are going to achieve. Say, I am going to do this or I will do this or etc. And re- re- uh, record yourself reading it and not just once like a number of times and then once it's recorded and you're happy with the recording play it to yourself the last thing before you go to bed and the first thing when you wake up and that will start to program your subconscious mind all you have to do is lay there and listen to it but it is important that you listen to it that you don't just daydream while you're listening to it mm. this is your listening skills listen to yourself tell yourself that you are going to uh, develop in the area that you want and you will start to see a difference. You just notice certain things happening. Your mindset will just start to feel different. You know, that's the really that's the simplest way. There's many others I could get into, but you know, people like simplicity. That is Absolutely. a super simple thing to do. I've you know, never go, heard of that before. Actually, I think I might try it. It's really easy. Uh, like I say, I call it lazy spirituality because 
once it's recorded and you've you know written down your affirmation and recorded it then it's there and you know look this is what people doing this is what i was talking to you about in uh, religions earlier when people recite mantras and dhikrs and prayers it's the exact same thing it's just that their purpose is to recite those things for a spiritual purpose you know you can go online and find like Sikh Gurdwani songs or Sufi dikhirs or Hindu mantras you can literally go online and find like a Lakshmi mantra where someone is just doing exactly what I just said where they've recorded themselves doing it but if you record your own one and make up your own affirmation you're tapping into your own creative power and that adds a different element to it because it's like you've created your own symbol of success and that mm. is really powerful so mm. the world works off symbols everything around you is a symbol you know everything is a symbol um sounds are symbols um tastes are symbols the things that you see are symbols um but often symbols don't really mean much to you you just see them and it's like yeah whatever but if you create your own symbol it has meaning to it that you have given it and that meaning that you've given it you then embed it into your subconscious minds and you continuously do that you know Wake up like really early when you do it as well. Like wake up at like you know five six in the morning, um, so you won't be disturbed, and just play yourself. Literally, just sit there and just listen, and then align that with how you want your day to go. And what you'll notice is the more you feed that to your subconscious mind, your conscious mind, which is your day to day normal thinking mind, will start to feed on that. See, the subconscious mind paints the picture, and the conscious mind acts on the picture. So if the picture is painted of you know bad luck i never get the girl or guy that i want or whatever you know then your conscious mind will start to believe that and that will be your day-to-day reality but if you start to change the picture in your subconscious mind that's of success i'm going to attract the partner that i want i'm going to attract the wealth that i want then slowly it won't maybe necessarily take place in the first day but slowly through repetition the other way to program your subconscious mind you will start to essentially uh start to believe these things and your conscious mind the ideas that come into your mind the thoughts that you have in a day-to-day basis they will start to reflect this new mindset that you are embedding into your subconscious mind it will become very natural to you over time but you've got to be disciplined no days off this lazy spirituality <laughs> practice. every day and night no, no days off to all my listeners that are going to go away and uh, record an audio that they're going to listen to before they go to bed and mm-hmm. wake up to in the morning. I'm actually going to try that. Um, I guess my three, three ways of training my mindset is through journaling because I mm-hmm. love writing and getting out all my thoughts on paper. It's very mm-hmm. different to when I am getting when I'm articulating my thoughts when I'm speaking uh in comparison to writing it's a completely different thing um Mm -hmm. I find more of that is delivered um via words on paper and I like to practice gratefulness so I might actually record my gratefulness and Mm -hmm. try and do that before I go to bed and listen to it what I'm what, what I'm grateful for um and I think I don't know if traveling comes into this, but Mm -hmm. for me, traveling is so healing. It's been a big part of my life. It has helped me in so many ways that I can't really describe that I get closer and closer to my soul when I travel. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's just something that my parents instilled in me from a very young age, because I was traveling from a very young age with my parents. It's just such a big part of who I am. And Although I've been bereaved and grief is such a big thing in my life, it 
the travel part kind of intersects with that. And mm-hmm. I guess in a way that um, it really trains my mindset when I'm traveling, I'm like the best version of myself. And I, mm-hmm. and often I'm traveling by myself and not with others. I'm on my own. Uh, and I, I, I just feel close to my soul. That's all I can really say. But um, I like that. Yeah. I study a lot of Sufi uh, Sufi philosophy and the Sufis talk about traveling a lot um, and exactly what you just said they, they say essentially that when you travel to other places and new places you're essentially journeying within yourself as well mm. um, remember I mentioned the word esoteric earlier the inner path yeah uh, Suf- Sufis are all about the inner path and although traveling may seem like an external practice you you blow your consciousness wide open when you go to a new place um, I've really experienced it when I went, I went to Spain on, my, on a university trip uh, years ago. I went to the south of Spain and I just literally felt my mind expand when I came out of the airport. And just, you know, I've been to the Caribbean quite a lot of times, obviously visiting family. Um, I've always, I always go to the Caribbean. I'm not complaining, <laughs> you know, but going to some of the south of Spain was a completely new experience for me. Mm-hmm. And... It was a very cultured place. It wasn't like a tourist place either. It was a very cultured, historical place that we went to. And I could literally feel my mind opening up and expanding just by being in that environment. You know, obviously you go to different parts of the world, the people have a certain Mm -hmm. look, they speak a certain way. There's a culture there that's different from the culture that you're used to. And that is so good for your mind to be aware and just to experience. And then like you said, for many people that opens up doors in themselves in their own minds. And that's why obviously you said, you know, you feel, you feel at your best when you're traveling and, and there's a reason for that. It opens up new doors. You come out of your comfort zone and stuff like that. It's, it's really oh, good. Massively. You. So massively coming out of your comfort zone, <laughs> you know, you're, it's like, I'm very alert. The mm. most alert I've been in my life. Um, and yeah it's just like a learning i'm always learning when i'm traveling and i love to learn yeah absolutely there's a saying from ancient egypt that um every day you're meant to live every day you should learn something and a day that you didn't learn something is a day that you didn't really live oh i love that say that again and who is it by uh i think it's an ancient egyptian like proverb or something like that okay um, every day every day you should learn something a day that you didn't le- learn something is a day that you didn't really live. Mm. And like there's another it. one that you'd like as well. It's a Sufi quote by somebody called Saadi. So I think a Persian poet. And he said that safety is on the shore, but the treasure is in the ocean. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm going to look that up after this. I love, I love, I love traveling. Like even from a young, uh, when I was young, I love watching James Bond movies. And one oh, of yeah. the main reasons I love watching James Bond movies is because in almost like every movie, they always go to some exotic new location. That's like, Oh so, my gosh. Like, that's so true. <laughs> Who was your favorite James Bond? Just out of curiosity. Uh, the first one, Sean Connery. Um, okay. I, I like his like traditional, you know, upfront, style like the dress style very classic mm. uh, daniel craig's cool don't get me wrong but um uh, sean connery i would say he was you know more he was more refined in that kind of gentleman um depiction um uh, shall we say mm. um many would agree yeah, yeah yeah many would agree but i think for me because i grew up to roger moore 
it's oh, it's Roger Moore <laughs> being the being in the nineties, uh, <laughs> you know, the James Bond. But yeah, yeah, he is good mm. as well. Yeah, always going to these exotic places. That's why I love the. That's what really resonated with me and made me want to travel as well and go to these places. You know. Mm, absolutely anyone that's listening you know if travel is something you're interested in you haven't done it before go on a solo trip or go with friends and family explore mm-hmm. out of your comfort zone do something that you wouldn't usually do mm-hmm. which now you know we're coming to the gratefulness challenge but before we do that how um best can our listeners reach you if they want to connect with you on social Sure. So my personal account is I am underscore James Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N. I'm also on Facebook, James Boston. So that's at Talking Wellbeing. And if you're also interested in learning about the history of the British Empire and British colonization, then follow my other page, which is Association of Former British Colonies or ASOC underscore former underscore British Colonies. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of information on there about the British Empire from India to uh, Australia to the Caribbean to Africa. Uh, try and cover it all, even though it's quite, uh, quite a difficult thing to do to cover it all. Uh, try and get as much information for you guys as possible. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, James. I've really appreciated your presence with us today. And we are now moving to the gratefulness challenge. I'm going to go first and Mm -hmm. then I'll pass the mic to you. I am grateful for, I haven't pre-planned this, so I'm going to freestyle. This year hasn't been the best year, but saying that it's been a moment of reflection and deep thought and just restructuring certain things in my life personally. Um, When I started this podcast, it was launched in November 2019. I did it out of activism and because of the poor experiences I had accessing bereavement support um, related to my identity and faith. We got to the end of series one um, back in July and really I wasn't expecting us to get a a season two and I'm so grateful to all of the listeners that wrote the letters in. I've read your letters and all your DMs and I'm just so grateful that you've taken the time to listen. Um, It wasn't a great year for me because as you know in January my dad died and I was halfway through this podcast and I was kind of thinking am I going to be able to pick up this podcast because sitting in this seat you know it's it's not an an easy job Mm. Uh, and I have had my own struggles with it and you know you're sharing a deeply personal account of your life and um, I'm always very moved by that and I appreciate it and it hasn't been easy, but I'm just so grateful that we've gotten to a season two because here we are. We're back here. It's a season two of Bereavement Room, which will run run right until Christmas. And I, I hope that it brings everyone a lot of value. And I hope that you were able to stay with us because I know that when my dad died, a lot of people were like, oh, what what the hell you know a lot of people stopped listening halfway through because it was like a massive shock Mm. um i hope that you'll come back and join us because we are still here and it's a season two so yeah just grateful to all of you and just the lessons that have you know the lessons learned from 2020 and what remains in in the second half of this year and onwards thank you over to you 
Um, thank, well, the, I think the first and most important thing would be, you know, my condolences to, to you. Uh, I didn't know that your dad had passed away uh, in January. So, you know, my uh, sincere condolences to you and your family for that. Um, you know, in terms of um, what I'm grateful for, uh, so many different things. But I'm going to say um, I'm actually grateful for Lakshmi. Um, Lakshmi, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, wait, do you know what Lakshmi is? Is it your girlfriend? No, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Well, actually, kind, kind of, kind of, yes. Her name isn't Lakshmi, but for me, Lakshmi symbolizes her. So Lakshmi is just okay. uh, like a Hindu. It's um, a Hindu god or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, again, it's, for me, it's not like an idol. It's just a symbol uh, mm. that represents something. Mm. And it, it actually represents my partner. But for me, Lakshmi is a, a spiritual outlet that when I'm doing meditation, um, it's something that really helps me to connect with a deeper part of my spirituality. Mm. Um, and I've been doing a lot of meditation with that uh, archetype or Lakshmi. So I'm really grateful for that energy in my life because, you know, to some people it's just, you know, just a, a picture. But for me, it's, it's more than that. It symbolizes something deep within myself and it really helps me to connect with my spirituality. And I'm so grateful for that connection. Um, you know, I actually came across Lakshmi in 2016 and it's really changed my life. That whole energy really changed my life so profoundly. Um, I, I can't even put it into words. So I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that energy and that, that spiritual outlet. Um, you know, I'm, I, can't, I can't even put it into words how grateful I feel. That was James Boston, co-founder of Talking Wellbeing app. A massive thank you to James for contributing to series two of Bereavement Room podcast. I really enjoyed that. It was just such a great chat. Let's wish him love and continued success with Talking Wellbeing. And also, if you resonated with today's episode, you can DM me, you can write letters to me over at Instagram. It's at Bereavement Room, or you can find me on Twitter at Bereavement Room. As always, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Kolsuma Ali.